Welcome to the Feather Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Welcome back to our podcast, The Feather Desert. And this week we are going to talk about all types of parrots. That's right. The title of this podcast is Parrots in the Desert because believe it or not, people, we do have parrots in the desert. And we're going to talk about one that is found here in the valley that lots of people see and are very confused by what it is. So I'm going to let Cheryl take us away and talk about this new animal we've seen around in the last few years or so. Well, thank you, Kirsten. Um, since about the uh, mid-80s, small flocks of peach-faced uh, lovebirds have been seen in certain neighborhoods in the Phoenix area. And these uh, cheery, rosy-cheeked uh, birds come to be a part of the landscape um, of the Phoenix Valley. And according to Arizona Game and Fish, they have uh, been introduced by humans. Um, somehow or another, and um, they have gone from being domesticated to actually being wild. Now, this small parrot is about five to seven inches long. It has rosy or peach-colored uh, face, green body, and blue tails. And, of course, it has the parrot beak and the feet. Now, lovebirds come in actually 15 different color mutations, which is why those of you out there who have been lucky enough to see them and not just hear them have seen... Um, yellow and blue or white and blue or green and yellow um, all those different color combinations um, but mostly they're peach peachy rosy face cheeks green bodies and blue tails now believe it or not the peach face lovebird it actually comes from a southwestern africa which is very similar to the um, arizona area i'm just going to uh, read their uh, some of the descriptions of the areas that they inhabit in um, southwestern Africa. So they come from, um, they inhabit dry mountainous countries, open savannas, and palm groves near water. That sounds very much like Arizona. Yes, it does. And covers our golf courses as well. So it's no wonder that they've adapted to um, the, the valley. Lovebirds are very social. They like uh, to do everything together, from moving from tree to tree, to eating, to the frequently bathing that they do and they're called lovebirds because they have um, a way of sleeping where they snuggle up together and they turn their faces towards each other and lean in so they do um, in pairs they do look like they're uh, in know, love yes cuddling <laughs> and snuggling um, they're colonial nesters which means that they uh, like to nest in groups and they like to nest in the fronds of untrimmed palm trees they do love canary palms um, they also nest in holes and crevices of the giant sororo. And they don't do harm to the sororo, so they're not making the hole. They're already inhabiting a hole that is there. The female lovebirds are the ones who build their nests. They are the ones who collect all the materials. And if you see a lovebird with nesting material tucked under her rump uh, feathers, her tail feathers, that's the female because that's where she uh, sticks them. She wads them up tucks them up in her, underneath her rump feathers, and that way she can carry more than one piece of plant material at a time. Well, of course, leave it to the ladies to, to be multitaskers. Right. 
lovebirds can um, potentially, this is part of their success, they can have three broods a year. They usually start in April and they have four to five, uh, they four to five eggs per clutch. An interesting fact that Arizona um, Fish and Game mentioned is that peach-faced lovebirds in, Arizona, in the Arizona population is one of the very few populations of introduced parrots that descended from domestic stock and they have gone from being domesticated to actually being classified as wild. Well, we are wild out here in the Arizona desert, aren't we? <laughs> All right, well, that is very interesting information. I didn't know a lot of that stuff. It's very interesting. And now for some of us who see them out and about, um, how could I attract them to my yard if I wanted to bring them a little closer so I could watch them while I'm drinking my coffee in the morning? Well, lovebirds are attracted to older established neighborhoods. So many of the tall shade trees, um, their two of their favorites are mes mesquite and palo verde. So the first thing to do if you want to attract them is you have to have the right neighborhood for them. So um, you'd have to look for mesquite trees or palo verde trees in your neighborhood, those old growth trees that are already really established. And you're usually, before you see them, you'll hear them. So if you walk around your neighborhood and you're hearing that parrot chatter, that tells you that you have the possibility of attracting them. Awesome. So if I'm in an old growth neighborhood with uh, the trees that you're suggesting and uh, palm trees possibly, how would I attract them to my yard? Well, they like to eat seeds, nuts, dried fruit. They like grains even. They are even adapted to um, eating uh, native um, berries and uh, fruits. So if I was going to put out, let's say, a feeder or something like that to attract them, I would definitely include um, oiled sunflower seeds, um, dried raisins or cranberries, um, tree nuts like pecans and walnuts in um, that mix. That's excellent. Now, I know at our local WBU Mesa store, they have certain things that kind of look like blocks of seeds together, and they call them cylinders. Is that something that these guys would be attracted to? Yes, especially the Supreme or the Cranberry. And the Cranberry in particular, because obviously it has dried cranberries in it, and the Supreme has the uh, tree nuts. So either one of those would be successful. But you need to remember that if you're not hearing them in your neighborhood or seeing them in your neighborhood, other birds will be attracted to those foods, but you won't necessarily get the lovebirds. All right, so moral of the story is patience, patience, patience. Yes, yes. All right, fantastic. Well, I also wanted to mention one quick thing about a different type of parrot that we see occasionally, and that is the monk parakeet or the Quaker parrot. Now those, we don't have any clear evidence that they're actually breeding here in Arizona, but they certainly have adapted to our environment, which does lead me to believe and other people to believe that they are successfully breeding here, but no one has caught them actually breeding yet. And they're um, slightly different than the peach-faced lovebirds. They are a larger bird. They're probably about seven inches to nine inches. They're green on the top from the, the sear, which is that part of the beak that's right next to the face, all the way down to their tail feathers. And then underneath on their belly, they are kind of a grayish white. 
and they have a much louder call than the peach face lovebirds. It's a little more alto. Peach face lovebirds are really high, high yeah. pitched, yes. And the monk parakeet or Quaker parrot, as it is also known, is a little lower pitched. Now these guys are different. They're from a tropical area in South America. So that's where they're native to. But amazingly enough, these parrots are cold tolerant. So they have actually established breeding colonies in New York state. That I was very surprised at. That is cold. I don't want to be in New York State <laughs> no, in the winter, but they seem to be doing pretty well up there. And one of the other things that's interesting about these particular parrots is they are not cavity nesters. So like you were saying with the lovebirds, they nest in the cavities, either a cliffside or in a nice bunch of leaves that are all together in that palm tree or the saguaro cactus that they use someone else's little cavity nest. These guys make nests out of sticks and twigs which is unusual for parrots most parrots are cavity nesters but these guys are not they like the the regular nest that you would see a songbird use and these guys also do like the berries nuts fruits and seeds so if you are in a neighborhood where you're hearing them which will probably be those old growth neighborhoods like you're talking about for the lovebirds then you could put out the same things if you're interested in attracting them it would be those nuts uh, peanuts the oiled sunflower and anything with the fruit in it so like those cylinders and then you might attract those monk parakeets as well so if you do hear something that sounds like a parrot and you look up and you're like whoa that's a pretty big parrot you're not crazy we do have some quaker parrots uh living here in arizona wow now the other thing that i did find out when we were doing a little bit of um uh, research for our parrots in the desert episode is that we had two types of parrots that were indigenous to north america did you know that no i didn't I didn't really know that either. I had heard about it somewhere in the back of my mind, but I'd forgotten about it. So we did have two, which I think is incredibly interesting because most people think about parrots as being a tropical species in South America. But here we used to have two. We had a Carolina parakeet who lived almost over the entire um, North American continent. And they were actually, um, they went extinct in 1930. That was the last time we ever saw any of those parakeets. They were a small parakeet. So they were probably about the size of the lovebirds, around five inches or so, but their tails were much, much longer. Their color was, uh, they were yellow-headed and with red feathers around their eyes, and uh, the rest of their body was green. So these were very brightly colored, vibrant birds, and they were hunted to extinction by humans, which reluctantly we tend to do a lot of. And there was another parrot that we had here too, much bigger macaw-sized parrot, uh, 15 to 17 inches tall, called the thick-billed parrot. And this one was specific to our area here in Arizona and a little bit of New Mexico. We'll give them some shout out, New Mexico there. And these guys were green parrots, a bright, lovely emerald color with a slash of red highlight over the eye, not um, kind of like eyeliner or eyeshadow up there. And they had lovely red epaulets on their shoulders and a dark black hooked beak. And their call is, as someone has said in a book, I don't agree with this, is the loudest, harshest parrot call to ever exist. I think they're pretty <coughs> interesting calls and there are several zoos around the country that do have them in captivity. So if you ever go to a zoo, we do have one here in the valley that has some thick-billed parrots. You can go up to the cage and you can judge for yourself whether you think that call is uh, really loud or 
um, raucous in your uh, ear there. So the last time we ever saw these guys here in Arizona was 1938. Now, good news, they are not extinct. They are endangered animals, but they have been extirpated from our area, which means that they have disappeared from our area and they no longer live, no longer live in a historic area that they were found in before. That's what extirpated means. And once again, they were extirpated due to human hunting. And this one was a bit of a shocker for me. Uh, they said that a lot of what happened was they were hunted for food. I had no idea you would eat a parrot. No. But I guess if you're a miner and you're in an area where it's really cold and you're like, oh, I'm hungry. That looks like a big bird. I'm going to shoot it. Uh, it was also really easy to see. It's not like it was blending in. So these guys are not technically desert parrots. They are desert adjacent. So they would be found in conifer forests that are 1,200 meters or above sea level. And so they were found historically in the Chiricahua Mountains and in our Sky Island areas here in southeastern Arizona and in southern New, Mex um, sorry, southern New Mexico as well. And they are, as I said, no longer found there. But they are still living in uh, Mexico. They are actually in the Occidental Mountain Range of Mexico, which is great. That's in Western Mexico. And one of the reasons that they don't come here as much as before is because we have lost some of our conifer forests. And the food that they eat in the wild are conifer seeds. Now, if you think about this, we all know what a conifer seed looks like. It's actually inside a pine cone. Now, I don't know about you, but I have held my share of pine cones when they have been fresh or when they're opened up, and they're both really hard. Yeah. I'm not cracking those things open with my teeth, that is for sure. <laughs> no. And that's what these parrots rely on, is the seeds in those pine cones. So when they did live here and in their area in Mexico now, they traveled a lot. They were very nomadic, so they went from forested area to forested area following the pine cones. And occasionally they would eat the pine buds and then acorns if they really had to, but it's those pine cones that they relied on. So since they are extirpated from our area, but we still have some living uh, people in the 1980s, a lot of scientists and animal caregivers got together and said, let's see if we can reintroduce them to our area here. So they did try and they were able to make a plan. And what they used were captive bred, thick-billed parrots combined with some thick-billed parrots that were confiscated in the black market trade. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife caught them at the border and they took them from the people who were smuggling them in. And since they were wild caught, they figured, oh, they have all they need to know to live in the wild. We'll try releasing this population together here in um, our area in Arizona and pretty much fingers crossed, hopefully they'll figure it out. Well, it did not work out well. This was definitely not a success. And one of the major problems was that pine cone issue. The ones that were bred in captivity never learned how to open the pine cones because they believe that the babies learn from watching the parents open the pine cones. The uh, captive bred population was not taught by humans or even by themselves how to open pine cones. So they did not do well at all. The captive population died out very quickly. And the other problem with the captive population, captive population is predator avoidance. You can't really teach a parrot 
look at that hawk. That's bad. Fly away. <laughs> Especially if the other parent sitting next to him and is like, oh, what's going on? Look at that pretty bird. And then like cats, they were never exposed to anything like that. So they didn't know to avoid predators. So once again, not in their favor. That also helped extinguish that population. Then the ones that were wild, they were actually doing decent for a while, but it turns out that they may have been exposed to a disease during the smuggling process and it weakened them. And they were unable to uh, flee from predators and uh, unable to continue flying the distances that they need to fly to go from forest to forest to forest. And also the fact that we've lost a lot of our conifer forested areas here because of wildfires and urban spread and all that kind of stuff. So we don't really have a great area for to sustain large populations. So they definitely tried in the 1980s, but it didn't work out. So today what they're actually focusing on is their conservation effort down in Mexico in that occidental mountain area. And they're hoping to bolster the population so that someday they might actually migrate back up here again. And we might be able to hear those beautiful, loud parrot calls here again in the Arizona Valley, which I would love to hear that. That would be great. That would be wonderful. Very helpful. Yes. Now, one little quick thing that I thought was really cute about this. When they used to be here, they actually got the nickname Snowbird which is hilarious because we do have snowbirds <laughs> here all the time, although they come during the summer and not the winter. But they got the word snowbird attached to them because, as I was saying before, the miners, which were the ones that were shooting them for uh, sustenance, they said that they would watch them and the trees would be covered in snow, but the birds are so hungry, so they're looking for the pine cones. They would flip upside down and walk upside down like a tightrope walker or something, I don't know, on the branches hanging from their feet and their beak. And when they would find a pine cone, they would pull off the pine cone, but that takes a beak and a foot. So then they're dangling from one foot and they sometimes the bigger ones would be so heavy they would fall and then they would float down and thump into the snow in, on the ground in the snow drifts. And then there was this big green bird in the middle of the snow. And the miners just thought it was so funny. They nicknamed them snowbirds. Wow, that's really interesting. And I it, thought it was it's interesting cute. too that we don't take into consideration that birds actually learn from one another. Yes. So that is, um, that's just a thought we don't actually, <clears throat> as people, uh, take into consideration. But also, I was wondering, taking that to the lovebirds, I was wondering if the, um, the su success of the lovebirds adapting to their environment here in the Phoenix Valley is whether that was more instinctual because they, and you don't have to answer this question, I'm just putting it out there, whether it's more instinctual that because the environments were so um, similar or if they were just maybe slightly better at learning from one another because one bird ate a mesquite nut and, and didn't die and then another bird said, oh, well, maybe I'll eat that and then they taught their babies. So I just, you know, birds learn by observation, just like, yes. Just wondering if that wasn't part of their success. That is an excellent question. And uh, hopefully our listeners out there will be inspired <laughs> enough to maybe look around and see if they can find the answer to that. And as far as no noise goes with those thick-billed parrots, I often wonder how the great horned owls at the, at the zoo handle all that. Yes, they are their neighbors. <laughs> I don't know. But they are kind of nocturnal and diurnal, so maybe they're all like, mm, we'll get you at night when yes. you're not looking. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, so that is a little bit of discussion about our parrots in the desert. So hopefully you guys that live here in the valley, and then I know some in California, the Peaches Lovebirds have been seen around in there too, that um, you guys will be able to see some of them and maybe attract them to your yard if you're interested in that. And we're coming to the close of this podcast. And one of the things we want to do at the end of our podcasts is talk about our plant spotlight. And Cheryl has picked a plant for us today. It may not be directly related to parrots, but it will be directly related to birds. And take it away and tell us all about our plant spotlight. All right. Well, today I'm going to uh, spotlight another bird, another, excuse me, another plant that attracts hummingbirds. And it's a plant that I've just recently um, planted in my yard. It's autumn sage. Um, it's a tough, it's actually a shrub. So it's tough, kind of well-behaved, doesn't take much um, trimming. And it's in the mint family. It has pretty red cherry flowers. And listen to the list of birds that visit your yard with this uh, with autumn sage. Black chin, rufus, broadtail, annas, and calliope hummingbirds all enjoy the nectar from this flower, from the flowers. It gets to two to three feet, semi-evergreen leaves. It's really pretty. And it adapted really fast to where I planted mine. And it has already doubled in size, and I think I planted it in February. So it's a fast-growing plant. Um, it does require some shade, so I put mine um, under a tree where it gets morning sun, which is preferable for it, and it gets afternoon um, shade. Um, it needs uh, good watering, generally once or twice a month. Um, it That drains fast, and um, it does really well also in large pots on the patio. And it blooms March through May, then August through November. So you have the potential to have flowers, color, and hummingbirds almost all year round with this plant. Well, I'm sold. I'm certainly going to get me one, and I'm going to put it right outside my house. Now, just to make certain, this is a, a native desert plant here in our area, correct? Um, it's more likely southwest, so southwestern um, Texas, down around New Mexico. Uh, New Mexico and Mexico, but it adapts well to the Phoenix area. So okay. not quite native, but close enough. Close enough for government work. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. I'm going to get out that. And that was called, once again, Autumn Sage, correct? Autumn Sage. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us again uh, and at our podcast, Feathered Desert. And we appreciate you guys coming, and hopefully you'll hang out with us again next week. Yes. Talk to you again. Bye. Bye-bye.